morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Thursday, June the 17th, and we gather this next hour around the gift of the inspired and true Word of God, and the Holy Spirit helps us put on our Christ goggles as we study 2 Kings chapter 12. As we've been digging through these last number of chapters, it's been kind of difficult. It's dragging a little bit. We call it the dog days of 2 Kings, but also the more we look at it, the more we see of the grace of our Lord. He is long-suffering. He He is loving every single king that is mentioned, even if they've done evil in the sight of the Lord. He is patient and kind and listens and also saves. That is what we have today, the signs of restoration, maybe of the temple, rebuilding, restoring. Maybe this is a sign of something getting better. Um, Is this going to be greater rebuilding throughout Israel and Judah? We'll find out. The gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your gracious support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word, we welcome our regular guest, Pastor Stephen Tice, Vacancy Pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Pastor Tice, it's a joy to have you back. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be with you today and a chance to take a look again, as you say, in the the grace and mercy of God and Him accomplishing His purpose through and around those who are called and serve and then obstruct and get confused, just like now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It definitely is a reflection of all of human time and humankind. So, so, Pastor, I wanted to ask this first, take a little bit step back from our text. And and one of the joys that I have, um, I grew up, I'm a pastor's kid, and one of the joys growing up is that we had a number of retired pastors who were very active in our congregations. Uh, mm-hmm. They actually are both Finns, uh, uh, Torval Essela and Elmer Lennon. They're both from the old Finnish synod that joined the Missouri Synod back in the day. But I enjoyed hearing their stories. I wish I would ask them more about where they served. So as you are a, a faithful man, you've been serving many years. I, maybe you've said this before, but I wanted to ask, and it's, it's a reminder to our listeners, too. This is kind of fun to hear. So, Pastor Tice, where have you all served in ministry since you were ordained? Well, since I was ordained, uh, my first call was to a parish in Blair, Nebraska, Trinity Lutheran Mm. Church. Blair is about 20 miles, give or take, north of Omaha. It's right on the Missouri River. If you ever drive north and south on Interstate 29 in Iowa, you'll see a sign for the exit for Missouri Valley, Iowa, and Blair, Nebraska, U.S. Highway 30. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was there for six years. Interestingly enough, that community had a Danish uh, Lutheran influence, and at one time there was a... A college uh, operated through one of the Danish Lutheran synods and eventually became part of the American Lutheran Church, but that was Dana College there. I was there oh, for sure. six years, ordained and installed on July 19, 1981, and then preached my farewell sermon on July 19, 1987. So I was there precisely six years. Uh, after that, uh, we moved to Michigan. Um, and I was associate pastor and short-time interim senior pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Rochester. Uh, that congregation had a, a large parochial grade school, still does have a good-sized grade school. And I was there for 10 years. Um, during that point in time, 
uh, three of our four sons were confirmed, and then we moved to Columbia, Illinois, and I served mm. at St. Paul's Lutheran there for 20 and a half years, and our youngest son was confirmed there, and then uh, we had um, three of our four sons were married in that congregation. Uh, one of them was married uh, across the river at the chapel at Concordia Seminary. Um, mm. At any rate, so we uh, spent about 20 and a half years there, and then when I retired, I uh, took a couple of weeks Went on vacation with my wife and then relaxed and visited friends. And then I began serving a three-month, um, well, I've, I'll call it a, uh, a Lilly Foundation grant uh, sabbatical for a friend of mm-hmm. mine who went for three months, and I served the parish she was in. And while that happened, the pastor in the neighboring parish took a call. So a month after I completed that service, I began serving a vacancy in Frona, Missouri, served mm-hmm. that one for 10 months. And then I served a vacancy at Hanover Lutheran Church in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And that was for about 16 months, during which we went through coronavirus adjustments and moving from from live worship to a remote broadcast worship, and then again restored to face-to-face and joint presence of the people of God. And then beginning in February, I've been serving the folks at Emmanuel and New Wells. That is great. You know, I did not even prepare Pastor Tice for that question, and he just rattled it off with no problem. Um, that is wonderful. And a reminder to our listeners, well, first of all, thank you for your, I guess, thank you for your service. That's not like you're in the military, but uh, you're in the Lord's oh. Army, obviously. Um, thank but thank you for those years of service. And and uh, a reminder to our listeners, too, one of the most fascinating people to talk to in your parish are those retired pastors and their wives to see where the Lord led them, where they've served. Uh, you know, I'm a Wisconsin, Minnesota guy so far. So, I, you know, the pastor, uh, <laughs> pastor uh, Tice has kind of gone around the Midwest or maybe it, it extended even beyond. Um, and uh, very thankful for your service. And talk to your retired pastors. Ask them, where did you serve? What did, you know, where did God lead you and to their wives? Because it'll show you how the Lord leads us and guides us on our path. Um, anything else, pastor, going on for you? Uh, well, just uh, briefly, during that period in time, uh, my wife obviously did a lot of work with raising our children and uh, did some daycare work. She did uh, initiate some handbell music programs in one of the parishes uh-huh. we served in Illinois. So she has she is a pianist from childhood, and so she's made use of those musical gifts where we've been. But it's also a partnership in, in ministry with a spouse. I mm-hmm. could not do that without my wife being there to keep other things together. So it's, you know, now that I'm retired, but I'm still serving, it's, it's a little different situation because my schedule is more flexible. But uh, the Lord the Lord puts us together with other people to serve. A spouse is a vital part of that, but if one doesn't have a spouse, then within the congregation, God provides strength and support for us to find others or fellow pastors, as you said, retired individuals. But I think the, oh, yeah. the key thing to remember there is we're all called to serve the same master. It's easy for us, either as pastors or even for lay people, to think that pastor has a higher calling. Mm. It's not higher in the sense that it's more important. It has perhaps more eternal consequence than certain other callings. But we all serve the same master and Lord. Mm. And so there's a danger of trying to elevate pastors higher than we need to be elevated. The work is elevated, but the man isn't. So Absolutely. Things we want to keep people focused on the fact that it's about serving God and following Jesus, which we all do together. Well, let's go to our Master now in prayer. Can you begin us in prayer, Pastor? Certainly. 
Almighty and gracious Lord, you give to us all the good gifts we need for each day's life. You prepare them each morning anew for us. Without our work or effort, you provide oxygen, sunlight, water, the food that's been growing over the previous months available for us. In all these ways, you sustain our bodies. But more importantly, you have prepared for us an eternal home, and you sustain us spiritually through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives by your word and sacraments, and by the glory that is yours, partially observed and reflected in this world, we know that what you have in store for us is far better than what we have now. As you prepared your servants in Israel and Judah for the coming Messiah, prepare us now through the study of your word for the return of that same Messiah, that as your people we might one day fully enter your home, your house, and worship you in righteousness and holiness all the days of our eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Reminder to our listeners, if you have any questions as we study 2 Kings chapter 12, drop us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, or give us a call, 1-800-730-2727. This is a live program, so you can call in, or at 314-821-0850, 314-821-0850. And reminder, too, that this is not just about questions. Pastor Tice, I wanted to uh, just say that we have great theologians that listen to us as well because yesterday on the program um, it was a uh, pastor uh, pastor and I were, were studying second uh, Kings chapter 11 mm-hmm. and one of the questions was is uh, was jo- Jehoiada married to Jehoshaba okay so one of the challenges one of the challenges is just one saying the words right, saying the names sure. right, yeah. but also it doesn't really tell us fully if they're married in Second Kings chapter eleven. And I kind of and I try to say this often to you, our listeners, that um, there's sometimes that you guys are able to study on the fly better than we are because we're trying to figure out this, we're trying to stick mm-hmm. to the text, and and in Second Chronicles, this is from Carl. Thank you, Carl, for sending this email. He said in a very kind way, he wasn't accusatory, but just said, I think we can say that they were without a doubt, because you go to Second Chronicles mm-hmm. 22, and it talks about the wife of Jehoiada, and it's spelled different in Chronicles, but Jehoshabeth, um, mm-hmm. Second Chronicles 22, verse 11. So that is just a reminder of chapter 11. Um, where we had some questions and didn't fully answer it. But once again, our great theologians, our listeners, uh, filled us in. So, um, Pastor, as I said that about the background, as we look at chapter 12, you want to tell us anything about the background that will help us out as we study this morning? Well, again, we are are coming up on this period of time where we have a, a reigning king who is young when he takes over and has... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it uh, some, some tension from those who want him to go one direction, but a very good advisor that the Lord provides for him. And this advisor is one who, again, will serve him in the time that he listens. It's a priest. And so what we see here is, is a combination of the office that God has prepared of priest serving the office of the king. The office of the king uh, supports and, and serves the office of the priest. Together they do God's work, but when they stop working together, then there are complications and problems. And and so uh, in our nation we have what we call you know the the attempted construction within our constitutional system of balance of powers, 
between the legislative, executive, and judicial branches, or at bare minimum, a checks and balances to keep one particular branch of government from running over the rights and needs of the whole country or the, the community. In the Israelite situation, the nation of Judah, there is a similar thing. The prophets would be what I would call replacing the judicial system here that God's got his checks and balances coming directly from the prophets. But as long as they're working together, good things happen. When they don't work together, the outcome is disastrous. And we see that played out in this chapter as we follow it through. And as we look at this, you have uh, just a kind of a beginning is, you know, you have word, names that kind of change a little meaning. So in chapter 11, we have Joash, as you said, becomes king and he is seven years old. And then, <laughs> so I was thinking about that today is um, very clearly, uh, what would we do if a president was seven years old? I mean, constitutionally, you can't have that. But let's just say somehow this happened. You'd be like, okay, there must be somebody helping him out a little bit. And we see that today because yesterday the question came up, he must have had a lot of help. And we do know today, as you said so well, that Jehoiada was very much so a major piece of his um, advisors and obviously pointing him back to the Lord as much as he possibly could. So I think that kind of answers another question that we had Mm -hmm. yesterday. Pastor, are we ready to dig in? I think we can go. All right, very good. Uh, let's open up our Bibles and let's go. Reminder to our listeners also that we are reading from the English Standard Version. And we are reading from 2 Kings chapter 12. And actually, I'm going to start with verse 21 from chapter 11 and just go through verse 3 of chapter 12. We read, Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord Yahweh all his days because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. So once again, we're talking about Jehoash or Joash, as we hear in chapter 11. And he reigns a long time. So it sounds pretty good in these first three verses, at least at first. Uh, what are your thoughts on the at, the at the introduction? Well, what we're told here is as he begins to reign, and remembering, like I say, he was very young, seven years old, clearly he's going to have to have some kind of advisor. The nation won't allow a seven-year-old to do this alone. And the person who becomes his advisor, um, keeping in mind his, his grandmother had been the one going around killing all the family members beforehand. Uh, It's not going to be grandma, that's for sure. She's out of the way now. And in the process, who's who's reliable? Well, the the idea that it might be a family member has probably been discredited by the behavior of his grandmother. So now they're looking at one who is already in public position and would have been anointed and, and appointed in public ceremony. So this priest, Jehoiada, becomes the one who is the appointed instructor. And as verse 2 puts it very clearly, Jehoash did what was right in the days of Yahweh all his days. And now here we have some translation thoughts, and one of the footnotes indicates this as well, that Mm -hmm. uh, as long as Jehoiada and the priest instructed him or because, and I think as we look at at what comes later on, it's probably better to say that it's, it's more in the as long as, or in the whole process of while he was being 
uh, instructed or directed by the priest. And nevertheless, high places were not taken away. He was working at reform, he was doing some things, but out in the, the wilderness area or farther away from the capital, again, where there's less direct contact, the people are still going out and worshiping the false gods, the idolatrous behavior of the Canaanites and the people that lived there before them. The high places uh, were still used and the people sacrificed there. And this is, again, a contradiction to or in direct violation of God's instruction as to where they should worship and, and sacrifice. Now, if you go back to prior to the establishment of the nation of Israel, we know that people sacrificed. Abraham sacrificed. Jacob sacrificed. And they did it in a spot where they set up stones and then they worshiped God. This is not the same kind of, like you and me, having personal devotions. This is going to a geographically elevated location that gets you closer to the sky and closer to the one you're worshiping. And these would not be worshipers of the true God because they're worshiping in the wrong place. And mm. what we're told is the false worship is not eliminated within the nation, although steps are being made to restore the proper worship of the temple. That comes a little bit later as we read on. That, you know, and that's something that was very striking because you hear of the high places, I believe, over a hundred times in, in the Bible. So you hear high places, and at first you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. High places sounds good, like you're talking about Jerusalem, going to the temple. Is that what you're talking about? But obviously it's plural. Um, and, and it very clearly, when you read commentaries, speaks about how there might have been some who were worshiping the Lord, but more or less it was a place prior to all this that they would go to the high places to get closer to whatever gods they were saying, doing sacrifices, maybe sometimes to Yahweh, but often to other gods. And so it, 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 it's some of those words you have to know the context to understand what he's saying. Because at first you're like, well, high places sound pretty good to me. I mean, this sounds like it's a good worship place. Like, yeah. like on top of a mountain and you have a chapel there. This is great, you know. But it was definitely a sacrificial place for multiple gods instead of the one true God. Did you find anything else on that, or is, is that basically uh, what we have? That, that's just the the consistent pattern that we find. And if you remember when, going back a little bit to the competition between Elijah and the prophets of Baal mm -hmm. and priests mm -hmm. of Baal, they went on top of Mount Carmel. They went to a high place. It ah. was almost like saying, we are not doing this in secret. We're doing it where everyone can see it. And that is, again... Another part of the offense, you're literally smacking it in the face of God and saying we're going to worship other gods and we're going to do it in a spot that everybody can see. We're doing it on a high place. And this is, you know, this is a, not just a spiritual insult, but a socially uh, observed flagrant disobedience of God's will. And we see that in our society today, people claiming that they can live a certain way because they are desiring to do that or because the old standards don't count anymore and they were applied to them improperly or they don't apply to me because I'm not from that culture. And so individuals will now publicly say, I want you to know I don't live by your rules. And that's yeah. pretty much going on with the high places. Absolutely. I still have the freedom to do to do this is probably one of the arguments that are being made. And one thing I've, I was reflecting on as we study this and throughout First and Second Kings is, Judah clearly has more times where they are following the will of God. They're, they're, they're doing right in the eyes of the Lord, but it always seems to have a but statement in it. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, it did ride, in, but and and it usually involves Baal, usually involves Asherah, and this is the first time for quite a while. First Kings mentions it, but there always just seems to be just that one last idol that they want to hold on to, hold on to tight, and that sounds like a lot about like we have today. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, there's the. Total trust in God is, is a gift from God and a challenge for us to say, well, I'm going to let God do it. I'm not going to try to hold back and have my own um, ace in the hole, to use a, a gambling term. Um, you know, the, the background that says, I can't trust God completely, so I better have a backup plan. I better have plan B. And, and you know, this is one of those things where occasionally you hear uh, someone tell a story or a joke trying to make a point. But it goes back to the, the whole plan of salvation, and God's plan was that Christ would come into the world and save us, and that God would die for the sins of, of his own children. And there was no plan B. This was the one that was going to work, and God said, from before the foundation of the world, I've committed myself to this plan. And so what the people of Israel have been doing is, is they've been saying, well, God, we're going to add a secondary level of security spiritually, just in case you don't provide for us the fertility gods of the region we live in need to be given attention. So just as a backup to make sure we get the rain and the crops and the livestock we need. And and again, it's it's a failure to, to lean completely on God and to trust him completely. And this is you know, it's part of the challenge we face in our culture today. Individuals want to believe that God will rescue them, but at the same time there's this inner voice that says you better do a good thing you better live a good life you better be a good person mm. or you better at least not do bad things because if you do bad things then then you don't get the good in the end well actually that's putting the cart before the horse if you do the bad things you don't get the good things now that's the real problem and and ultimately if you don't trust in god you don't have eternal life but in this world Doing the good things is right and proper, but it doesn't secure the future for you. So. That's what it reminds us once again. There's nothing new under the sun, nothing new. And as we look at it through the cultural understanding of everything, we had a we've had a guest, Nabil Nuer, and we've had some of his uh, uh, mentees, I guess you call them, say great three lines that I, I want to repeat all the time is is that context is king, culture is queen, and Christ is always the center. And I think mm-hmm. that's very helpful as Pastor Tice always brings us back to the culture and context. So let's continue on verses four through eight. Um, as Jehoash does a good thing, he he wants to do something for the temple, which is something we've kind of lost sight of in the last number of chapters. But here he wants to do a good thing. So let's see how that, see how that goes. Verses four through eight. Jehoash said to the priests, all the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, Yahweh, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of, of Yahweh, let the priest take each from his donor and let them repair the house wherever any need of repairs is discovered. But by the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priest had made no repairs on the house. Therefore King Jehoash summoned Jehoiada, the priest, and the other priests and said to them, Why are you not repairing the house? Now, therefore, take no more money from your donors, but hand it over to the repair of the house. So the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the people and that they should repair. They should not repair the house. 
Now, Pastor, we might need to touch more on this after our break, but first thoughts on it seems like Jehoash wants to do a good thing. He wants to repair the temple, but it seems like there's some miscommunication or a lack of productivity that's happening here. What are your thoughts on these verses? Yeah, the, uh, the money, the gathering of all the, the holy things that God had appointed, um, anything set aside for sacred purposes, the temple tax, all the other things that, that we're familiar with was being gathered. But in the process, the the laying down of the money was being put in, but, and this is again reading what it says here, there seems to have been a failure to get the process going. They were perfectly willing to gather the funds, but then once the distribution plan gets put in place, something's not happening. And, you know, this is one of my personal peeves in the history of the universe, uh, that bureaucracies tend to exist after they're first established. They're first established to do something good. They do it for a very short time, and then they exist to perpetuate themselves. Mm. Um, and that's probably part of what happened here. You had a really good system going for gathering the funds, but not a very good system for building anything or repairing. And and as the repairs are planned, the the put the putting together of the plan may be there, but you can spend a lot of time planning and make yourself believe you're doing something. And until you actually do it, the, the plan is is only an idea. I, I think part of what was going on here, you know, it's the twenty third year. So right. he started in the seventh year, twenty third year, they've they've had 14 years to get this going, and and this is, you know, you've gone past the the 21st year, uh, you know, divide things into seven, of course, anytime you're doing a little bit of math with the Old Testament people of God, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and they've, they've gone through the cycle of Jubilee twice now, the seventh year, the labor, the year of, of fallow and rest, they've had that three times since, since he's become king, and no work is being done on the house of God. So they're, they're misunderstanding the whole purpose of the Sabbath rest, the temple building, the gathering of the gifts. The purpose of gathering the gifts is always to increase and support the worship and glory of God. Same thing true in our parishes today. The purpose of gathering the gifts and offerings of God's people is not to meet the budget. It's to increase the glory of God and to serve the needs of people with the gifts of God. And, and that's not been happening. So there's there's a spiritual malaise in the country, evidence from the fact that the high places are still there, the people continue to sacrifice. The real question here is, what's happened to Jehoiada? Why is why is Jehoiada not processed this repair? Um, so basically, the king summons Jehoiada and says, "What's going on? Why why aren't we getting anywhere?" As long as he listened to Jehoiada, he did right in the days of Yahweh. So somewhere in between, has he stopped listening to Jehoiada? He gave instruction and then walked away? It doesn't mm-hmm. tell us that here. No. But I suspect that's part of what happened. The king no longer was counseling with the priest. He was just assigning, delegating, and then not counseling. But again, that's uh-huh. my assumption without that word being defined here in the text. So what I want to do after our break is to speak a little bit about uh, people giving assessments, uh, the, the uh, money that was given from the heart, uh, that kind of language. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. the temple tax. I want to talk a little bit about that after our break. We are studying First Kings. Uh, chapter the second, excuse me, Second Kings chapter twelve with Pastor Stephen Tice, and we'll be right back. 
as we struggle to look at the world from a Lutheran perspective, there are many things that would tempt us from seeking first the kingdom of God. The May issue of the Lutheran Witness is all about this. Titled, Seek First the Kingdom of God, it covers a wide range of learning how to get over our worries and fears and trust in Christ alone, to how to avoid the temptations and struggles of technology. To order your copy of the Lutheran Witness, visit cph.org witness. You can also read more on witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you look at the world from a Lutheran perspective. The idea that our creation is the result of a fluke, an accident, is ridiculous. A hundred thousand monkeys typing on a hundred thousand typewriters, even after a million years, would never produce the works of William Shakespeare. But they might produce several episodes of Wrestling with the Basics, Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. On air or on demand. A click away 24 hours a day at KFUO.org. Touching the lives and the hearts of our listeners with the Word of Christ. Sharper Iron is such an incredible, amazing gift. I thank you so much for what it's doing for me and what I know it must be doing for a lot of other people. God bless. To leave a message on the KFUO comment line, call 314-996-1542. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Worldwide KFUO. And welcome back. We are studying 2 Kings uh, chapter 12 with Pastor Stephen Tice. And as we are looking at what Jehoash wants to repair the temple, there's a lot of question marks about, okay, well, 23 years, a year of Jubilee. We didn't do much that year. How come we aren't getting anything done in the other six years? We gave the money. The money, where is it? I mean, this is a classic situation in a church where they're trying to figure out where are the funds going. But I do want to take one step back because we have the temple, and it speaks about all the money that's given to the temple. Um, and 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 Pastor, how did that how did that work when people would give money to the temple? What, was it like you said temple tax? What was the process of people giving to the temple and the and the worship that happened there? Well, there there were couple of different ways they gave to the temple. One of them was, as we have just said, the temple tax. This was a standard God had set that each adult male in the land of Israel uh, was to give this money to the work of worship in God's house. And in fact, it, it began even before there was a temple. Uh, this, mm-hmm. this also applied with the tabernacle. But its, its purpose was, I'm going to use uh, an inappropriate phrase, but maybe a better concept for most people, it's a membership dues. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's not the right term for it, but people are familiar with that idea. the The point was, you're part of the people of Israel, and so every year you give this because this is how we support the worship of God's people here in this land. And God said, "Do this." It wasn't the priest who said, "Do this." It wasn't an organization that said, "Let's get together and form a society that gives money." This was God saying, "There is a cost to." To my service to you. And as a reminder that there was a cost, every year you will pay a fee, a tax. And, and the thing is, God is, as, as he established, establishes this, sets it up later in the New Testament as well. You remember Jesus is, uh, asked if he pays the temple tax and he sends out Peter fishing to go catch enough money to pay for the yeah. temple tax for two people. You know, it, God says, sons are freed from the, from the debt, uh, that have to be paid. So, you know, We'll do this to keep people going and follow the rules, but technically 
the payment's going to be taken care of. We don't have to worry about it. And that, Jesus does that. And see, this is the key. Once Jesus does it, the temple's no longer needed. Once Jesus pays the full cost of God's service to us. Okay, so all of this really is tied into salvation. But the other thing is, it's also that everyone has the need to give. Mm-hmm. And, and this is part of the challenge, the you know, terminology we throw around the life of the church. We don't give to a need, we have a need to give. And, mm. and if someone in the congregation were to die and leave a church $10 million, that wouldn't change the need of anyone in the congregation to give back from God's blessing, part of what God gave. This is part of what's going on here. As the people of Israel are building and the process is going on, the gifts and some offerings were brought, and those were used to support the priests and the families of the priests and the Levites. You know, there, there was money that was given, literally, for the support of the servants of God at the house of God. The offerings included parts that were then taken as food supply for the family of the priests. So the, the whole structure God put together dealt with the public worship life and the care and maintenance of those serving in the house so that they were free to serve in the house of God, not having to go out and get a job somewhere. But at the same time, it also gets back to this understanding that the people of God give out of thanks for God's blessing, and that the giving goes on even after the construction project is done. And then that enhances the glory of God. And as Lutheran Christians, we tend not to give the glory of God quite the level of attention it should have, uh, if you read Isaiah 6, uh, it becomes pretty clear that the, the glory of God is, is a key concept in the ministry of Isaiah. But the, uh, the whole understanding that Jehoash is, is restoring the temple because the glory of God has been neglected. Mm-hmm. And, and once the glory of God has been restored in the building, now the people give giving it, and as we read, this gift now is going to go into utensils and supplies to furnish the temple, but also... God prepares ahead of time for when the people of God are going to have to turn away the attack of the king of Syria. That's true. Oh, very good. Yeah, Yeah. very good. See, this is really good. And you know what, Pastor Tyus, I have to tell you this because you're a humble guy and and the Holy Spirit will keep you humble. But I got an email this week that said, you know what, Pastor Tyus is my favorite guest pastor. And I think we just saw why. Because we didn't prepare for that question either, but Pastor Tice knew it right off the top of his head. So very thankful for your work, Pastor, and how you explain that. Because it was very eye-opening to me in verse 4 that the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of Yahweh. And it's interesting because we kind of assume that everybody just, they pay the temple tax, I'd done my dues, now I'm going to go buy my boat. You know, um, well, no, people had the temple tax. They had other giving that they were to do. And they sometimes did it just out of pure gratefulness for what the Lord has given to them. And this goes into Second Corinthians uh, 8 and 9, which talks very, very much so about you must give according to what your heart is. But to give um, uh, as the Lord who was rich became poor so that in in his death and resurrection that we would become rich. That kind of language is used throughout the scriptures. And even in the Old Testament, the people gave because of all the gifts the Lord had first given to them. So I think I think we got that. That's very helpful as we look at the context of everything. And I want to move forward a little bit here, Pastor, to um, he's going to go, why aren't you repairing it? And there wasn't really an answer given of why that wasn't being repaired. But in verse 8, it says these words. So the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the people and that they should not repair the house. What is happening there? What did you find? Well, we're, we're looking at, at this whole understanding that 
the repair of the house has to be dealt with by accounting money to pay the workers, and we see that coming up in the next section. They, they basically said, we're not going to do anything else until we've alleviated the concern that people have been taking money and, and not accounting for it and not using it properly. And I think part of, part of what's going on here would, would also tie back to the question of who's in charge of seeing that the work is done? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it the priest? Is it the king? Who's the one in charge? And so we're having a stop the process until we clarify the responsibilities. Ah, uh-huh. yes. I read in the commentary of Kale Delich um, that talks about how it wasn't that the work was n- that they were no longer going to take money. It's not that they're not going to repair it. It's it's much like um, in my own congregation. I can't fix anything. I can't fix anything. I mean, it's just it's just terrible. But I'm full of people, men and women, who are able to fix and to repair within this congregation. So if you were to say, you know what, Pastor, part of your job is to make sure that things get repaired in this church. Well, guess what? I think we're going to end up with 23 years later, people wondering, is anything getting fixed here, buddy, or what's happening? Mm-hmm. So it's much like this. They're reevaluating who's in charge, how this is going to happen. Clearly, Jehoiada and Joash are very concerned about the worship life of God's people. So now they're just reevaluating what that looks like. So any last thoughts before we move on, Pastor? Uh, again, with the two are working together, things happen right. When they're not working <laughs> together, problems. Exactly. So, And it's a very good uh, reminder for us as God's people as well. So verses 9 through 16, we continue. Then Jehoiada, the priest, took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of Yahweh. And the priest who guarded the threshold put in all the money that was brought into the house of of Yahweh. And whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest came up and begged and counted the money so that was found in the house of of Yahweh. Then they would give the money that was weighed out into the hands of the workmen who had oversight of the house of, the, of Yahweh, and they paid it to, out to the carpenters, the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to the masons and the stone cutters, as well as to buy timber and quarried stone to make repairs in the house of Yahweh and for an, uh, any outlay of the repairs of the house. But there, was, there were not made for the house of Yahweh basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any vessels of gold or of silver from the money that was brought into the house of Yahweh. For that was given to the workmen who were repairing the house of Yahweh with it. And they did not ask an accounting from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to pay out the workmen, for they dealt honestly. The money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of Yahweh. It belonged to the priests. So we have a, a very good overview of, okay, okay, that now we have questions. We're not going to do this with the priest. Now this is what we're going to do. So what's their next step? What's their plan on what to do with these this money that was graciously given? Well, they, they are paying off the, the repair costs. They're buying the supplies. And what struck me again was the, uh, the simple um, statement to buy quarried stone. Um, mm. Because the, the stone was, again, cut from quarries, and as was done at least with the building of the, uh, the temple the first time around, they didn't cut any of the stones on the site. They pre-cut them so that there was no sound of a hammer or chisel being used in the building of the temple. 
the, the work was all done off-site and then assembled. I'm going to use the word pre-fitted and then assembled on the site of the temple. So part of that's still going on, it sounds like. Um, the other thing to recognize is that they had to go out and quarry more stone. Something has happened that the stone has either deteriorated or there's been damage done to it. They actually have to quarry more stone to repair, repair broken spots or patch holes. Um, and, and the people doing it are doing it honestly so that they don't have to do an accounting. They've got honest workmen. And again, maybe that's part of the problem beforehand was the people that were doing the work couldn't be relied on, but that's been resolved. We're not told it was a problem. We're just told they weren't doing anything. And now that they are, the money's being paid out to those doing the work. They actually have hired laborers and the laborer is worthy of his hire. And those who have the income from the people, the receipts from God's people are dispersing those receipts, those resources to pay the worker and and so in the process we also see god completing his first article role of having the people doing the work getting paid for what they do and the people in charge of the building seeing that the, the distribution is taking place and i think um the the thing that, that we're told here is they didn't use any of these things then for putting in furnishings that's going to have to be done differently mm-hmm the workmen are getting money out of this chest. And notice that they had a process. When they got enough of it and the chest was full, they'd take it out, count it, the high priest and the secretary. So it's, you know, accountability. Of, you know, your, your, your finance committee has people counting the money, and you have supervisors and more than one person at once handling, and then you write down how much came in, and you take it to the treasury. Okay. There's some interesting accounting process going on in this particular section. But, but it says clearly the people were honest that they dealt with. And this this item, I think, is is probably more significant than than you and I initially would have thought. Hmm. They they did not have to make an accounting because the people doing the work dealt honestly, and the people paying dealt honestly. This is a powerful statement about the sincerity of the dedication to repairing the temple. Once they got the process going, they were going to do it right, and they were doing it honestly. And at the same time, the money for the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, the stuff that came in, that's not for the house of the Lord. That's for the servants of God. And go back to the, the book of Leviticus, you find this, this reference again in Numbers, that some of the offerings go to the support of the priesthood. And, and I think in the life of the church today, um, you know, we've, we've always taught within the Lutheran uh, tradition that the pastor is to be supported in the work in the community that the pastor serves so that he can live comfortably in the community not have to worry about his family's health and care and and livelihood and at the same time be able to serve the people in the community without being distracted by concerns about repairing the house or whatever else might be going on and it's never you do this to get wealthy and it's not you do this uh, to lay aside for yourself you do this because this is where the Lord's called you to serve, but the people mm. you're called to serve are to, sure, to be sure that their pastor is able to live there. And we see this already in the Old Testament with the guilt and sin offerings that goes right to the priest, never goes to the treasurer. Right, right. And so we get a little bit of unveiling of, okay, so all of these uh, furnishings are not to be made. We find a little bit more later about this. We hear a little bit about the verse 16. 
the money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings were not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priest. Now, can you kind of break that down a little bit? You're kind of on fire this morning, Pastor Ty. So I figured I would ask you on these as well. Guilt and sin offerings. Mm-hmm. What are they talking about there? These are the individuals who, who uh, as opposed to the Passover meal or the, the uh, festival events, this is where I have offended against God. And I've done something that needs to be atoned for, but it's my personal sin. So when I come to the priest, I'm coming to the priest and saying, offer on my behalf a sacrifice to pay for my guilt. This is the guilt that I've incurred, and the law of God says this offering is required, and I pay into your hand what it costs to do that. And I do it directly to the priest on service. It doesn't go to the house of God because it's not for the glory of God, it's for the the payment of my guilt. And so the one who handles the payment is the priest. The one who offers the sacrifice is the priest. And now we're going to pointing back to Jesus, who is the one who offers the sacrifice for us when he offered up himself. And and so into his hands is placed the resource to do the offering. In the case of Jesus, of course, he is the one who brought the valuable offering of his own righteousness, his own life of service. And then he offers the sacrifice. And as he said, no one takes it from him. He lays it down himself. Part of that's tied in here. But I think it's also part of the economy that says the people are are connected intimately to the priest. And if they're all honestly doing what they should be doing when they bring guilt and sin offerings, there'll never be any need for providing for the priest outside of service at the temple. Mm-hmm. Because the servants of God will be amply supplied by the people of God acknowledging they have sin and guilt. But it also is another way of saying we're all connected. We don't do this independently. I can't address guilt without addressing the other people of God with me. And Mm. a pastor today forgives people's sins, but only in in the category of we serve in an office in a a position. My authority doesn't come from me. Mm. It comes from God. The priest in service had priesthood because they were from the family of Aaron and appointed by God, but they had to be appointed for sin and guilt to be dealt with. Today, the church has pastors. The office of the ministry is there to deal with the sin and guilt that people have. And, and the whole purpose is to make us right with God. And it's, it's, you know, it sounds like a financial transaction. It's not a financial transaction in the in the base sense of the word, it's a transaction in the sense of there has to be atonement made for sin. Now, because Christ has done that, we no longer have the sacrifice, we no longer bring an offering of money or an animal, we, we bring a, an offering of, a, of a, humble, a humble and lowly heart and confess and receive forgiveness and absolution. But it's still the process where we interact under God's direction. And I think that ultimately, as you look at the nation of Israel, it's always about the people of God in relationship to God, and God always has to come and fix it. They can't ever fix it. They can admit they've broken it. God always has to fix it, and that's true for you and me. We can't fix what we've broken in our relationship with God, but God fixes it. We do have to come and say it's broken, and then he freely repairs and restores. And, and so we see that this doesn't need to go into the house of God because the I'm going to use the phrase, the glory of God's already been dealt with. This is about the sin I have. 
Ah, very good. Wonderful uh, 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 review of how this all looks because it can be confusing. Like, okay, is this Day of Atonement? Is this guilt offering, self sin offering? Um, where's the scapegoat fit in all this? And it's a wonderful way of breaking it down. For them, it seems like, um, okay, we've, we've established all this. We have a new way of, of doing this. And so it sounds like we're just going to kind of fat and happy and move on. I mean, everything, everything's going to ride off into the sunset from here. Joash is doing well. Jehoiada seems to be on the same page. Money's going to the right place. Priests are doing their jobs. Um, sounds like a good deal, doesn't it, Pastor? Well, short term looks real good. But <laughs> go back to what, we go back to what God told Elijah said, okay, I'm going to bring you home, but you anoint, you anoint, uh, Elisha and you anoint Hazael and you anoint, you know, and then I'm going to, I'm going to get the work done through these guys after you're gone. And so we see God doing what he had promised to do when he talked to Elijah. Absolutely. So 17 and 18, we'll keep reading. At that time, Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. But when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of Yahweh and the king's house, and sent these to Hazael, king of Syria. Then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. So uh, right now, it seems like Syria has taken over Gath, which is interesting because that's more in the south uh, western side of Israel. Kind of an yeah. interesting way. If he got that, that means he must have conquered something else. But it seems like kind of a stressful time for uh, for Jehoash. Um, any any what what's happening in these verses? Well, part of what's happening here is is the realization that the Hazael, again by God's direction and by God's plan, has conquered the, the ten. Northern tribes have been overrun. He's conquered the region of, of Manasseh and, and you know, the, the east of the Jordan River, the Gilead Zone. And now he's looped to the side. Now he's going down the coastal road and, and moving closer to Egypt so that it's a pressure politically from the north. Where are you going to find your, your support? The northern kingdom of Syria, uh, I'm sorry, of, of Samaria, uh, Ahab's mm-hmm. family, it's, it's slowly evaporating into nothing. You can't right. find strong support there. Where will you find your strong support? Who do you look to in time of trouble? Well, um, partly what you're doing here is you're, this is, you know, the Old Testament recounts for us part of the history of the world was extortion by army. Um, it, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's really, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's the protection racket done in, on the national scale. And part of the challenge to recognize the term nationalism uh, is something we apply back to those periods in history. And, and it really was about the, the ruler more than the nation. So in that period of time, it wasn't so much the nation as, as much as it was the glory and grandeur of the individual ruler who happened to be from a particular nation. But, but part of what happens now is who gets all the glory for, for the people of Israel, not or the people of Judah, not being conquered by Hazael? Is it the military strength and power? Is it the political intrigue, or is it the resources God's got stored in his house that have been laid up over the past generations? The God who rescues them, in this case, does it in the way that we would think hurts the most, you lose all your money and treasure. But see, these are all temporary things anyway. And so what God is doing is he's rescuing his people with the resources he's provided them over the previous previous decades. And now that now that the 
the enemy is on the border, what do they do? Well, they don't have an army that can drive him off. But God's provided them with financial resources. Again, given out of thankful hearts, joyful response to God's blessing, and then the king, who is God's representative to the people, supplying the storehouse, making the vessels for the temple, all these special things. You get down the road a little bit farther, we run into Hezekiah, you know, same problem. Mm -hmm. Anyway, mm -hmm. but, but it's the, the supplies that God has provided rescue the people from destruction. And you and I would say politically, well, that's a bad precedent to set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the king's role is to keep the people safe, not to keep the treasury full. And that is so a... He's doing the work he's called to do by using the resources at hand. God provides is, I mean, it goes back to Abraham and Isaac and the ram, and it just continually is shown here. That's something I did not fully see in this text that says here, well, they're not making this here, but then later on we see this is why the Lord did what he did. Let's continue on to the end. We have about three minutes left, and we'll have you wrap things up here, Pastor Tice. Verse 19 to the end. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? His servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash in the house of Milo on the way down to, down to Selah. It was Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants, who struck him down, and he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So a very troubling end to what seemed to be a, a true case of the Lord providing and working with his people. Your thoughts and the end of Joash's uh, uh, kingdom and his mm -hmm. life. Well, the, the uh, end of his life, uh, again, Chronicles gives us a little bit more detail, but he had those who opposed him. His servants arose and made a conspiracy. Now, where was he going? He was on the way down to Phila, the house of Milo. What was he doing there? Why was he headed there? Again, I'm not told here in the text. We don't know for sure what the, the purpose was. But in the process, we don't know where this is. Where was he going? What was he doing? Is he's opposed by those who don't want him to rule anymore? Is it because they think he should have kept all the money? Is it because... He's disobeyed God and, and uh, engaged in idolatrous behavior. Uh, you know, the Lord's at work here. But the, the key thought is, he is struck down by his servants. Who is it that, that harms you? And Jesus then is betrayed by one of his apostles. The, the trusting in human beings process always has inherent in it the danger of betrayal. But God never fails us and God never betrays us. And then the, when he dies, he's taken back and he's buried in the city of David with his fathers. And that phrase, buried with his fathers, means there was a public burial. It was a, an acknowledgement of his death. He was honored in his death. And his son takes over. Now, was there a plot to get rid of him so his son could take over? I mean, he, you know, he was king. He was ruling for, uh, uh, what was it, 40, 40 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Number, of, number of years, 40. Naturally occurring event in history, right? No, wait a minute, Cato, it does numbers in 40s because they don't occur naturally in history. So, see, there, there may just be a little bit more involved with, with that 40-year thing than, than what we caught the first time around. So, Pastor, we have about 30 seconds left. How would you summarize this chapter? I would say that God can do his work through his servants as they listen to his instruction and then in joyful thanksgiving offer their service to God. 
And as they do so, God will bring good out of it. And he won't necessarily bring it out in the way you and I would have first envisioned. But all things work together for good to those who who love God, whom he's called according to his purpose, and he's called us, and in Christ we walk according to his way. And he'll take us to the right place, and when Jesus comes back, we'll see the real temple, and then we won't worry about what the uh, Assyrian and Syrian armies ran off with. Pastor Stephen Tice, vacancy pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri, bringing us God's strong word from Second Kings chapter 12. Pastor Tice, thank you again for being our guest. My pleasure. Thank you. God's blessings with you, and enjoy the nice fall weather approaching sometime. <laughs> Saints of our Lord, there was some hope. Joash started in faith, desiring that the temple be restored, and God worked through his people. And we pray that the Lord would not only start us strong, but keep us strong, and he does. Through his baptismal regeneration, everyday repentance and forgiveness, being strong with him until he returns. Lord, help us to be strong in you. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands. Mm-hmm.